Welcome to the Disability and Podcast, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Paul Wilshaw chats with CEO and Artistic Director James Brining and Deputy Artistic Director Amy Leach of Leeds Playhouse about their inclusive policies, their engagement with Ramps on the Moon and how they dealt with the first COVID lockdown. Hello, listeners, and today we have James Brining and Amy Leach from Leach Playhouse. Thank you very much for coming on to Disability and Podcast. You're very welcome, Yeah, Paul. great to be here. Exciting to be here. Great. Um, can you tell us a bit about your job and what you do at the Playhouse? Go with James first. Okay, well, my, my, I've got two titles. I'm the Chief Executive and I'm also Artistic Director. So as chief executive, I my responsibility is to have an overview of the whole organisation, although there's lots of brilliant people who actually do the work uh, to make the theatre run and, and, and make sure it's you know safe and sustainable and everybody here is, is working well and happy and the audiences and people we work with who come into the theatre. And then artistic director, I work with Amy very closely to sort of choose, select the shows that we make, the artists who make that work and the work that comes into the theatre Uh, which we don't make ourselves. And Amy? Yes, and my job is that I'm the Deputy Artistic Director. Um, And I suppose, yeah, I support James in delivering on the artistic vision of the theatre. And that's everything from, again, directing and working on um, shows and the programming of the theatre. But I also lead on Furnace, which is all of our artistic development programme here at the Playhouse. Um, And also over the last few years, I've kind of really driven forward in terms of um, access and working with disabled artists and and thinking about creative access as well at the theatre. Brilliant. Talking around access and all the great work that Leech Playhouse does with disabled audiences in mind and our staff, um, what's driven getting disabled audiences and um, uh, staff into the Playhouse? There's a couple of things from my point of view to sort of say, I suppose, to start. One is that I think this theatre, the Playhouse, has always been based on the notion of a theatre for the people of Leeds. And so when the theatre was set up in 1970, that that was in the DNA. And I think back then it was, it was m- more driven by, I suppose, a sense of social equality and the sense of anybody, who, wherever they were from in the city, being able to have access. But over the years, that's developed and become more refined and more informed by practice and partners across the sector. Uh, so I think in that, that what you just described, Paul, is, is in terms of disabled people and disabled artists is driven by that desire to be as inclusive as possible, not just audiences, but actually people who are making and, and leading work. And then on a personal level, I, my own experience of this, I used to work in Dundee and I encountered a number of people, including Grey Eyes work and Jenny Seeley bringing Reasons to be Cheerful, which I saw, which led in a way to Ramps on the Moon project. And also disabled dancers within Scottish Dance Theatre, like Caroline Bowditch and Mark Brew, whose practice was really driving forward the dance sector, I think. So I came to Leeds about 10 years ago with a sense of the importance of this as part of a theatre, a sort of large-scale theatre's practice. Um, but it's 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 ramps on the moon and particularly Amy joining. Uh, and, and also some existing things like the, the innovation of relaxed performances and a lot of the work we've done around people living with dementia that have sort of contributed to a real focus on um, this this area uh, of of making work led by disabled people, making disabled people in terms of audiences have genuine opportunities to experience great theatre. 
Absolutely. I think like James really brilliantly um, described is the kind of the DNA of this organisation as being one that has wanted to serve the city and its people. And I think, um, again, it felt like maybe before the Ramps on the Moon um, project kind of started that there'd been such a lot of work happening but in a more participatory way and one of the things that drew me to want to work at this theatre kind of full time was about the kind of the brilliant uh, I suppose community focus and civic focus practice of this theatre which I think is really special and I think that's always been there um, as as James described and I think what's been really exciting about the Ramps project is how that shifted into also thinking about the professional artists who are working with us um, thinking about how access can be there not just as a kind of additional access feature but actually absolutely part of the DNA of the art and I think that's been really really exciting for kind of a large-scale kind of you know in inverted commas mainstream theatre to really think about what is the creative potential of working with disabled artists thinking about access in a creative way and I think that's the journey we've been on more recently it kind of it feels like it's building but also expanding that so actually those progression routes those career paths for disabled artists are there um, so that the work that we make is as accessible as possible but in a really exciting way not just because it's good to do and I think that's been a really um, exciting part of the journey I've particularly found that really personally creatively fulfilling so I'm also so I also work for Mind the Gap but I work here at the Playhouse as Ramps on the Moon agent for change and it's definitely been an experience and an eye-opener for me in terms of access and uh, inclusion at the Playhouse and the stuff that we are doing really well, learning from other theatres and mm -hmm. other agents for change, and also things that we can improve on. One of the really kind of massive kind of byproducts, I suppose, of the Ramps on the Moon involvement and this like last seven years is that the more that we've considered access from a kind of disability point of view, the more that actually we're just improving the environment, the working mm -hmm. conditions for everybody. Mm -hmm. So that diversity of thought, diversity of people coming in with different experiences of life, different outlooks has just been so fantastic to kind of expand. So actually we might change something because it's going to really help um, a disabled person but actually it has a massive knock-on effect on everybody so that's felt really exciting i would like to go back to the relaxed performances mm. because i think leeds was probably one of the leading founders of relaxed performances from what i understand yeah. so can you tell me a bit about that yeah i mean certainly just when i arrived here it was 2012 i think i think it was either the year or 18 months before that that we did our first relaxed performance on the production of cinderella in the courtyard and I believe that it was the first rap performance that had taken place anywhere in the UK. Uh, I think the RSC started doing them around about the time. But certainly what I've been told is that we started that off. Now, you know, you have to talk to the RSC about whether they agree with that or not. But that came, as Amy said, that came out of working with learn-disabled young people and wanting to make the work that we, were, that we were creating and producing on stage accessible to the young people we were working with through our participatory programme. So it kind of came about through need, really, um, rather than a sense of, oh, we need to do that because that's the right thing to do. I mean, it is the right thing to do, <laughs> but I think that's why it kind of feels like it's an authentic evolution of what, what we were doing. And, and the work we've been doing in that, in that area for a number of years has been really exemplary, but also quite hidden and quite small, almost by necessity, because those rooms are often, uh, they need to be particularly safe and the work is for not for great volumes of people. Um, and, and it's also not the kind of thing that is, is necessarily publicised much. So I think that the work we've been doing 
for a number of years leading up to that had been really great and thorough and had led to relaxed performances. And since then, we've done them, you know, ever since then for an increasing number of shows. Yeah, it's interesting around relaxed performances because everyone seems to have a different notion yeah. of what yeah. a relaxed yeah. performance actually mm. is. Um, and, yeah, talking about that, I find, like, some theatres will say that it's just lights going up and music being mm. tempered down. Can you tell me a bit about your experience of disability arts in general and also where do you see in terms of the playhouse it, on our stages and we've got the ramps on the moon project which is great mm -hmm. but like what are your feelings around disability arts in general big question <laughs> big question <laughs> i mean maybe we'll sort of go back and forth on this but yeah. i mean one thing that amy said which really resonates with me is the idea that the work becomes much more interesting when it is inclusive and mm. when people uh, yeah, say disabled people, for instance, are, are given the opportunity and given the platform and given the circumstances where they can make brilliant work. Those stories that are often not particularly foregrounded or not centralised or not told are actually brilliant and amazing stories that we need to hear. And I think that's, that's in a way, that's a fundamental to me, which is that the world's a much richer, more interesting place mm -hmm. and empathy and understanding and uh, generosity is kind of cultivated by opening up those opportunities quite rightly i mean it's it's just our obligation our duty to do that but actually the work becomes much interested and not just the work one can see and experience but actually when you're making work and when you have disabled people within your company the adaptations that, that you you know need to make can can enrich the work and open things up mm. i suppose mm. and so i suppose on a, on a very basic creative level it's more exciting it's mm. more dynamic it's more invigorating and it's more inclusive yeah yeah I would totally agree with all of that. I feel like, um, I think one of the things that has been so brilliant as well about the last few years and the journey that we've been on is also the kind of the wealth of disabled artists that are mm. kind of coming through mm. and part of making that work. And I think that's really important for um, particularly non-disabled theatre makers, you know, organisations who aren't necessarily led by disabled people is to make sure, you know, when we look back at, at the brilliant work of, Grey Eye, Unlimited, you know, um, Mind the Gap, all of these brilliant yeah. companies. Um, what we've got to remember is at the heart of those companies are disabled people who yeah. are leading that work, who are advising on that work, who are kind of driving it forward. Like we couldn't have gone on the journey we've been on over the last few years without the um, expertise, the ideas, the creativity, the innovation, the um, generosity of spirit, the, the kind of teaching of so many brilliant deaf and disabled artists. And I think it's really important that wherever we go in terms of the journey that that gets more and more respected and remembered because I think there's a real danger that you know this kind of like oh this exciting new way of yeah. making theatre yeah. it's yeah. like well a it's not new people have been doing this for a really yeah. long time yeah. so we have to like absolutely remember we're standing on the shoulders of absolute giants like mm. people like Jenny Seely that um Jay's already mentioned but also that actually I think where it feels we absolutely need to be heading and we're not there yet. It's how are we making sure that in the end, the people running buildings who are doing our jobs, who are directing on the biggest scale if they want to, are also disabled people themselves. And so I think that's absolutely kind of, you can't make that happen overnight. Talk about journeys. Yeah. Ramps on the moon. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so that's been going for six years now. Yeah. I think it's six. Seven, yeah. right? Six, oh, yeah, six or seven. seven. Yeah. 
the reasoning behind it was to get our uh, artists with disabilities on our stages. So, and for mainstream organisations yeah. to accept um, accept disabled yeah. work. So, um, why did Leeds want to actually be part of that? Well, I've, I've already mentioned that, actually, the day of one of my interviews, maybe my second interview for this job, there was a huge symposium that Scottish Dance Theatre had organised in Dundee. It was a two-day symposium for um, the dance sector, looking at disabled artists, training of disabled artists, dancers particularly, and I remember having to do the speech the night before and then not be there for the second day because I came down here. And I remember Matt Fraser was the compare mm -hmm. who was uh, <laughs> typically, uh, what's the word? Uh, typically Matt. <laughs> typically Matt. And he said some very um, direct things to the assembled room. I think I was the only director of a theatre building from the UK at this symposium, which had about 250 people there. Now, it was in Dundee, and it was my theatre as part of what we'd organised. So I'm not claiming to, you know, I'm not claiming that if it had been in Penzance, I would have been there. But it was interesting to hear and see and take part in the discussion from of brilliant people from across the whole of the UK and some international, not just dance, but dance and theatre. And that's an example, I suppose, of what I've already mentioned, that when I was in Dundee, the, the Scottish Dance Theatre model of having a an agent be changed uh caroline bodich she's wheelchair user and and she she was really influential and it wasn't just her actually there were other projects that janet smith had put together which had sort of started to get me much more aware of this area of practice and and as i started to become more aware and this is in the early 2000s these things were sort of rattling around my head and i was really proud of the work that that scottish dance theater which is part of dundee rep had led on in the dance sector and so when i got this job I, I, I was kind of like, I'd been really influenced, I suppose, by the value and the significance of that work. And actually, I remember going to see Reasons to be Cheerful mm -hmm. when I was still in Dundee at Stratford East. And, and then it was when it Strathfield was, Opera as well, wasn't well, it? Well, I mean, that, that yeah. Reasons to be Cheerful was kind of, was then was touring. Before, yeah. And I was like, we have to get this to come to Dundee. Mm. So I think it went as far north as Manchester and then it came to Dundee. And the audience's <laughs> reaction to that show was absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. And then it actually came to the Playhouse as well because it went on the subsequent tour. And I think Pete and Sarah from Ipswich were very involved in that as well in terms of New Woolsey. And, of course, they were kind of key people in terms of, along with Jenny from Grey Eye, in terms of developing the Ramps and the Moon notion. So I can't remember why, but we were one of the theatres that were part of the original conversation. There were seven originally, but only six managed to get involved in the final sort of consortium bid and grey eye as well so we were founder members as it were along with the other five building theatres and grey eye and I, I, like i say i mean a lot of it is on a personal level felt to me a perfect opportunity it was an absolute sort of no question for me that this would be a brilliant thing for leeds playhouse to be involved in i have to say having having sort of signed up for it Others here have done a huge amount of work to make it a success here. And, and particularly since Amy's been in post, has just picked it up and run with it and done amazing work. But the strength that I think the sec that those theatres within the sector have got from working together and from the challenges and the opportunities that have arisen over that period of time have been, I think, groundbreaking. They really have. And I don't think we'd have got anywhere near as far without that project. And Amy, like... James is mentioning a lot about your experience with mm -hmm. Ramps because yep. you directed Oliver Twist. I did, yeah. Um, so can you tell us a bit about that experience and um, so what you, have you learned during yeah. that process would be really interesting for our listeners. 
It was interesting. I was having a catch up with Michelle Taylor, who's the director of Change for Ramps on the Moon the other day. And I, I, I was getting quite emotional actually talking to her about the thought of phase one of Ramps coming to an end um, in March next year. Because so I joined the Playhouse, like Jane says, um, it had been going for a couple of years um, by that point. And but I'd seen all of the Ramps productions. And I think you can't help as a director watch those productions and see the kind of creative challenges of like all of the access requirements, all of those different layers of access that needs to be present creatively every show and you know I'd sat through all of the other ramp shows going god that looks really hard and what on earth would I do if I was to do it but also being kind of like I'd quite like that challenge that that looks really exciting because actually one of the great things about being a director is challenging yourself to do things that you don't know how to do hey because that's how we make better art and also obviously within my role at the time as associate director kind of very much kind of starting to join our ramps on the moon meetings working with our agents for change your predecessors Paul um, and starting to kind of you know get really involved with it so I think there was just a sense for me of like wow what an amazing project to get to deliver when it gets to be our turn to do our ramps on the moon production but I also I think got a real sense of like watching it of how how many layers of challenge there were and that I wasn't ready that actually despite you know, I'd worked with disabled actors before. I'd worked in participatory contexts with lots of disabled people. But actually, there's so many elements that I just hadn't really practiced. So I needed to get practicing. So I think that was the really fundamental thing for me was that I knew I had a good couple of years before our ramp show was on the horizon. So I just thought I just need to treat every show I do between now and then as an opportunity to pack on the muscle ready for Oliver Twist because I knew it was going to be so massive. What I didn't want to do is get to like the first day of rehearsals, be stood in that big you know circle of meet and greet and be like I don't know how to do this because that's not also going to help those artists involved do their best work if I'm not ready for it that would be me letting them all down because I wanted to take it on and prove that we all should be doing this work because I was aware it's not just about me packing on that muscle but about us organizationally packing on muscle so how do we get our stage management team ready how do we you know think about the marketing side of things so that's really the journey that I went on in terms of prepping for Oliver Twist Oliver Twist well that's it experience all to itself what was that like trying to also work out the pandemic and uh-huh. the legislations or what you had to put in place yeah but also for you Jade, because it must have been an experience for you um having to also work around what the playhouse were doing with mm. during the pandemic mm. as well and I want to it for you first Amy and yeah. then from you James I mean I think we were lucky that when we made Oliver Twist first time round I remember actually driving into um, a tech rehearsal actually um, which would have been in February 2020 and saying to the sound designer this COVID thing should we be like taking any notice of this because we were so deep in the kind of you know tech week kind of all consumingness of the show so I think we were quite lucky in a way that actually we got the show up and running it had had its press night you know we were a couple of weeks into the run by the time the pandemic actually hit Um, which because I can't quite imagine trying to do that show and also having the challenge you know first time round of the pandemic just for anybody who hasn't seen Oliver Twist it is currently actually still available to watch the film on National Theatre at Home for that one, it was the first time a Ramps production had commissioned a new adaptation um, rather than using a pre-existing script. And I think that was brilliant because what it meant is we could take this classic story that everybody feels like they know at least some elements to the story of Oliver Twist, but we could really um, embrace the casting. We could embrace the way we wanted to do it um, in terms of access as well as part of the actual design of the show. 
And so, for example, quite a number of the characters were deaf characters. So we could really think about the impact of, say, the Milan Conference in 1880 and deaf history um, impacted on those characters, those deaf characters. We could think about kind of how disabled people were treated both within Dickensian society and now. And we could really put that as part of the narrative and what it felt like, you know, when we go back to that sense of art, what, how does it make the art better? I feel like we took this story that everybody thinks they know and we just found all these brand new layers to it that kind of almost like almost more vividly portrayed the world Dickens was painting in the first place. Um, so that felt really, really exciting. It also meant we could, um, so Brian Lavery, brilliant, you know, very experienced playwright, could absolutely, we could think about how we were going to integrate British Sign Language, integrate visual vernacular, integrate audio description, captioning into the fabric, the very fabric from day one of the production. And that was so exciting because of, you know, it just led to so many exciting discoveries in terms of like what the creative possibilities were. We could also think about the design world. So, you know, thinking about, well, how do you create a visual design that's also accessible to a lot of blind people? You know, and, and how can we make characters, you know, I remember like finding like Nancy had jangling bangles so you could always know when she was on stage for example these details that make it better for everybody but were really accessible so that was really exciting then yeah we had the pandemic which was we were such a family and I think one of the things um about Oliver Twist um I asked a couple of questions on the kind of second day of rehearsal of everybody and I can't believe I've not been asking these questions at the start of every rehearsal period ever but I just asked everybody to share what do you need to do your best work and what do you need other people to know about you to do your best work and I asked it of everybody so regardless of whether you identify as disabled or not everybody had to check in because we've all got access requirements actually we've all got ways that we can work better and it was such a great equaliser of a question but what it also leads to is this level of care for each other in a space you know a kind of of generosity that is just so beautiful um that team i remember the day that we had to say right we've got to cancel this big long tour they were all to due to go on and they were such a family and i remember sitting in this big circle and everybody sobbing um because people were heartbroken so it was actually a glorious thing to get to film it by that point we'd been through as a playhouse quite a lot of projects where we'd had to factor in filming and covid so we were quite again we'd packed on the muscle i think in terms of that and actually what was really lovely about it was to get to six weeks to rehearse a ramp show is not a lot of time when you like the number of different things you've got to put in the show just the translation job you know into BSL for example could take six weeks so it's a lot to get done and so even though I was really proud of what we made first time around to be able to revisit it and just add extra detail was just glorious um yes we had to recast a couple of people actually because they'd all gone off and got more exciting jobs to be honest (laughs) and that in itself is great because those are disabled actors off getting work you know and and being snapped up and that is a fantastic thing so it meant we could welcome some fresh faces into that um maybe the biggest challenge was i got covid in the middle of rehearsals so i had to direct via zoom but again anything's possible i had like the bsl interpreters next to my, my my massive head on a zoom screen but it was just lovely to get to revisit it to be honest and get to bring that team back together it kind of gave us a sense of closure I think on a project that felt really quite um, groundbreaking and had really genuinely changed a lot of our lives myself included you know my whole practice has changed as a result of building up to and, and then the kind of repercussions of that show. Well I mean I think I think it's really interesting hearing you describe all of that which is like five years work in five minutes your preparation for directing that show was like 
it wasn't just like a few months. It was like years. You prepared yourself to be the best place to direct that show mm. over a period of time. Uh, and I think we were lucky when when the kind of close down happened in that the show had got open at least. Yeah. And I remember the opening performances and, and you know, they were really brilliant and powerful. It was clearly frustrating, but I think the fact that you'd been so careful, uh, the way you not just brought the company together and and those artists, but also the way the script had been evolved over, you know, over years. I remember the workshops you held, and that was partly upskilling you, but also making sure that the the script you were working on was the best it could be. Yeah. So I think it took a huge amount of care and painstaking dedication, really, to put yourself in a position where you could do your best work. And the fact that it then got got made into, you know, is on that platform, which we're really proud of. I mean, and, and Amy, you know, you deserve huge credit for it being there. You know, I think is it the first sort of externally produced show on that platform mm-hmm. that isn't a co-production with the National Theatre, but it's standalone. It's and that's just and and that isn't to say that nobody hasn't that people haven't done work like this before no, or right. have done brilliant things. That, that's not what we're saying. But I think for this theatre you're leading from the front and you, the way that the show informed not just the production departments, but the whole theatre mm. in, in, in the approach it genuinely has shifted things here. Um, and it's been really inspiring to watch that work and see the outcome on stage, but also the way the audiences responded to it. And really brilliant to see how artists, actors who were cast have gone off to do other things. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that's part of the point of Ramps on the Moon totally. is to shift the sector yeah. The pandemic clearly threw huge, huge spanners in the works. But as always, you navigated around them and in some cases actually made the most of the opportunities that that set of circumstances presented. There was a lot of uh, theatres that actually video recorded their shows. Mm. And this actually did help the disabled communities mm. actually feel that they could actually go and see the shows um, without having to risk themselves going out um during covid there was a lot of talk about how the industry was going to change and like the learnings that we've had however it does now feel very much like we're going back into the same old routines how do you feel about that and like what do you think theaters including leeds playhouse can help change that and actually getting disabled audiences back into the theaters and do you think that videos and like live streaming shows could still be done um, in a practical way, um, but also affordable way. Well, I think you're certainly right about audiences in terms of the volumes of people turning up. There's definitely uh, a significant effect uh, that the pandemic has had. And that that's true here and, and elsewhere. And that's something we need to try and address medium to long term because uh, the, the, what's already a difficult, challenging situation financially is just made worse if people can't come. Um, and I guess we, we need to try and build back those audiences by uh, engaging people uh, kind of um, creatively, imaginatively, you know, also thinking about pricing to make sure that we're not just trying to fill the gap by putting the prices up because that won't work either. I mean, the filming uh, sort of question is an interesting mm. one. I mean, I mean, I'm aware that, in a way, out of necessity, um, through the pandemic, theatres, including ours, did did that in a way that we hadn't done much of it before. And I think the benefit of people being able to see that work without having to travel to or spend huge amounts of money on those tickets um, 
is a good thing. But the, the, the two challenges really are, one is the kind of the quality of the experience that you can offer. That's one thing that we've we not, not so much struggled with, but that's what we encountered as we were doing this work. Yeah, you know, to actually get an experience for a, a, a digital audience uh, takes major investment in terms of hardware, personnel to sort of record or capture or live stream, you know, a, a lot of resource that isn't currently built into budgets. Uh, and then the second is, and this is maybe more subjective or dis arguable, is the quality of the experience uh, that you get by watching it on an iPad or a telly or whatever, computer, laptop. I mean, I, my view is that there are some brilliant examples of that form that came out of the pandemic, but they were pieces of work that were particularly adapted to the digital format. And they may have been theatre, but sticking a camera and just recording a bit of theatre in a theatre auditorium, even if there's some close-ups, isn't necessarily the most in interesting way to go. So I think this kind of hybrid model, for me, is the most interesting one. But then you, I think that takes further investment because the actual form of the piece you're creating needs to be adapted much more fundamentally than just capturing it and, and distributing it. So I, and I think, and this maybe sounds like an excuse and maybe it is an excuse and maybe it's about priorities, but there are particular challenges at the moment across society and for businesses, how you even manage to pay people with the cost of living crisis and with the energy crisis without adapting the form of the storytelling you're used to doing. Um, and that isn't a recipe saying we can't do anything about it, but I think that's part of the context. I mean, it would be brilliant to keep that door of accessibility open so that people who can't come to the theatre can experience what what people who can come to the theatre can experience. The question is how we resource that and how we do it in a way which is actually satisfying good enough. It was also interesting making, you know, two or three films in the kind of lockdown period. Kind of it was such a different skill set as a yeah, director. Um, and and that was, you know, we managed it, but it's a really interesting thing. And it's a very different thing that you're creating because I think one of the things that I absolutely adore about theatre is the shared experience of it. You know, seeing people come together to watch and experience say Oliver Twist together in that room with those actors, with that particular company, with that mix of audience felt so special and so powerful and so political actually. And of course you can't quite achieve that when you're by yourself kind of like watching it on your iPad and getting distracted by the doorbell, you know. So, but I, but I also totally hear you that actually there are definitely things about the fact that we were able to share so much that people could be part of a conversation that maybe yeah. they miss out yeah. on. And I think that's a big thing as well, isn't it? It's not just about the quality of the experience, but it's also getting to be part of a conversation Mm. The, the, another aspect actually which maybe relates to the financial one and if, if our senior producer were here he'd say this i'm sure is some of the challenges we found is the uh, the complexity of ownership rights yeah, <laughs> um, yep. you know who should be credited financially for work and i think a number of projects we've tried to uh distribute digitally have not been able to take place because of a, a lack of a a, f a sort of formula really for accounting for that whether it's to do with the unions or to do with the management bodies or to do with the individual artists royalty it's a really complex thing um there's a sort of format for you you put in a play on and the writer gets royalties and you know the creative team get paid but when, as soon as you get into digital distribution you're then opening a whole set of relationships which have to have negotiations around them to talk about who's going to get what 
financially, quite rightly. Mm. And I think that also as a for a sector, that's a lot to then take on board in the midst of just trying to get work happening. So whether that will eventually find a way through and that there'll be negotiations and the format created. But that was another challenge, really. Yeah. And I think there is a lot of challenges um, that people don't see yeah. outside. Mm. And I think it's really interesting, that whole point of what you've made about royalties and payments and also payments about for disabled artists is a whole ball, oh, different yeah. ball game yeah. around yeah. the system. So... Yeah. Um, yeah. What show would you both like to direct with a, di- a disabled character in a role? And why? And why? <laughs> There's got to be a reason why as well. So, I'm yeah. giving away my secrets here, know, Paul. There's a few that Amy mentioned to me. That I'm <laughs> I know, I've got quite a list, but I'm not... I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> don't mention the don't mention the ones that are going to be really successful. Okay, we want to do them. We don't want somebody else to nick the idea. Do you know what? I mean, we laugh, but actually, I mean, I think where I've got to um, on the journey that I've gone on is that I actually now find it incredibly difficult to conceive of projects and not think about that as a as a part of it. So, I just find it really difficult now to read a play and not be looking at it through the lens of both um, what mm. what could the possibilities be in terms of disabled casting. Because every single time, what it reveals about those characters is so thrilling, so exciting, so brilliant for the story. Obviously, like I did Macbeth, as you know, Paul, earlier this year. We had a deaf Macduff family who used BSL. I mean, the kind of layers and things we found in this, like, what, 400-year-old, like, one of the most kind of well-loved classic plays ever. Like, it was amazing. So why wouldn't you kind of think about that? So I think I find it very difficult now to think of any play without going, oh, and I wonder what would happen if that character was had that disability mm-hmm. or was bringing that form of communication to the table or, um, you know, and, and also in terms of creative access, I think, again, like, I kind of can't help but look at plays now and go oh this is a very um descriptive play already perhaps we can push it and make it completely accessible for a blind audience or oh actually this is a really visual story what's the possibility of having bsl within this world or or really thinking about how text could be part of the design in terms of captioning um so uh, yeah i maybe won't (laughs) kind of do a specific one because i think in a way it's like yeah any any show Mm. i mean i've got a whole list in my head but i'm not going to reveal my secrets here (laughs) (laughs) I, i would say influenced by amy really and encouraged as well trying to just have as representative a company uh, of whatever piece you're creating. So I remember I did a production of Europe, which is a six-hander, and we cast Alex Novak in that, uh, who's deaf uh, actor. And, I mean, I, I was much less prepared than Amy was and much less skilled. But it was very interesting. The character isn't specified as a deaf character in the piece, mm. but it, it, it opened up a whole set of conversations within the company about how what support Alex needed, but also what that what layers that open up within the play it was very very interesting and it's every echo isn't it it's every decision you've just described then the kind of also thinking about how you support those um, team members thinking about then the awareness that it raises within a company of actors and within mm. the creatives about the kind of how you might change a room how then that's represented to an audience it's like every I always think like that every seed we can plant can potentially yeah, grow yeah. and what I've been really excited to see is like seeds you know actors I've worked with who've then gone off to learn get their level one BSL or you know 
or some actors who set up an audio description company or, you know, all those ramifications mm. are really exciting. I'm also excited about where we can commission new work, either with disabled writers, yeah. you know, yeah. so absolutely in the kind of work we've been doing, as you know, through Furnace, all our artist development is around how do we support artists to come through who can be telling these stories themselves, who can kind of be writing these stories themselves. So that's also something that's absolutely kind of on the horizon. And then also, you know, I'm now reading a lot more, um, kind of expanded what I'm reading. So like, where are the stories out there that kind of have central characters who have a particular disability or, you know, and, and so how can we also be thinking about that within our um, adaptations in the future and stuff? So there's, yeah, I get so excited. You know, yeah. I do. It's <laughs> kind of like there's two the ways. Possibilities. There's like, there's like how to foreground, how to explore, say, a disabled person's experience as a central element of a piece mm. of work and the lead creatives being disabled artists. But there's also the sort of the the just the representation of society in, in kind of equitable terms. Yeah, I think yeah. it's both directions in a way. Seriously. You can do it by sort of casting Matt as Richard III, or you can do it by just making a company very representative and yeah. very inclusive. Yeah. I, mean, I, I was speaking to the guy that's, that, well, one of, the, one of the grandparents in Charlie. I didn't know he was disabled. He said that he'd never, he, he'd normally kept his disability quiet and his agent said, don't mention what you might need. Mm. And here he'd been encouraged to say what he needs and the support has been put in place and he's doing the quite a significant role. And I think it's like one, one conversation with one person then leads to another conversation. And yeah. it's that sense of, and we're constantly learning and, and wanting to yeah. grow and adapt constantly you never ever got it all sorted no, no. but i think it's about being on that journey as you said of 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 understanding that the work's richer and better yeah. uh, and the world's a stronger place mm -hmm. for that sense of inclusivity understanding and empathy mm. and and brilliant stories and brilliant artists yeah. whose lived experience gives them something genuinely unique and genuinely striking that needs to be heard Talking about new writing, new directors, new producers. Yeah. I want to talk about the introduction to producing, yep. directing, and also our partnership that we have with Sheffield Theatres. Uh -huh. I helped create the introduction to producing uh -huh. course. And that was because I was seeing not a lot of learn to say what producers out there. And it was getting on my nerves saying that I was like one of the uh, the one of the only learn to say what producers out there and what we actually are hoping the legacy will be on that kind of project and mm -hmm. after i leave the playhouse where do you want that kind of project to go and what you want to see in the future from that so the playhouse has always done artist development um i think probably since it was first created mm -hmm. in 1970 and so i suppose of course what we couldn't do is do the be part of the ramps consortium and not also be thinking about artist development here at the playhouse we think about our creative engagement department our um our furnace work and our, what happens on our stages as kind of one big creative ecosystem we couldn't have driven forward on what we've done with the ramps projects on our stages without also thinking about those other areas obviously creative engagement were kind of quite far ahead so actually over the years i mean yeah the introduction to that we just done that you were part of Paul um, was a really massive ambitious version of that um, but I suppose it grew out of work that we've been doing for a number of years supported by Ramps supported by um, RTYDS which is the Regional Theatre Young Directors Scheme so we had actually done a, a, an introduction to directing for deaf and disabled directors about kind of four years ago and from that quite a number of the people on that course have gone on to do um, other paid placements and opportunities been commissioned and had all kinds of different opportunities come out of that and we kind of wanted to build on that and grow it like you say into areas that we know that there are gaps 
where are the local writers? Where are the um, disabled producers? So that was very much where that kind of grew out of. Um, and I mean, the actual courses themselves, it was just a brilliant project, wasn't it? And like so impactful for the, like you say, the 24 people involved in, in participating. But also it's led to, as you know, the um, creation of a new disabled creative network here in Yorkshire. Uh, we had the first gathering, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago, um, yeah. which was fabulous to kind of just welcome so many deaf and disabled people from the area to the Playhouse. And that's going to continue kind of to rotate between us. Barnsley Civic and Sheffield Crucible um, and again it's like how can we keep on connecting with our partners with, our, with the other regional organisations kind of encouraging other people to, to join this work and do this work as well as you know we've had a fantastic partnership with Mind the Gap over the last few years as well and that's been transformative I would say in terms of our learning journey around how can we support learned disabled actors within professional contexts. Um, so I think we're really conscious of how much partnership working is so valuable. One of the things I loved about the big set of courses we just did was um, that every one of those courses was run by at least one disabled person, that all the visiting tutors were disabled artists. So there's also that sense of kind of where are people's role models? Where can people kind of see themselves represented on that next stage of their career path? That's the important thing of um, how do people get that step into yeah. this industry? Mm. Because it is a hard industry to get into, yeah. mm. disabled or non-disabled. Yeah. And yeah. Um, those kinds of courses, I think, really help. I think there is still stigmatization in drama schools yeah. um, around disabled. So it's making sure that the context is that we're not only looking for disabled uh, artists from like going to uh, NAS, like the drama schools I think it's how do we get make mm. sure that those happen outside of drama schools um, but still getting the training yeah. because I think sometimes the training is not in place yeah. and then you're stuck and you're not going to be able to perform as well as what you would mm. I think more courses, more funding, <laughs> more, fu more funding. <laughs> um, but yeah, I want to say a great big thank you to you, James, and to you, Amy. Uh, it's been great listening to the work that you're both doing uh, at the Playhouse. Um, and yeah, let's carry on the great work from the Playhouse and... Uh, make sure that more work's happening and more disabled artists and staff are, are at the Playhouse and finding opportunities. So thank you both. Thank well, you. Thanks for asking us. And just to say, also, your work at the Playhouse has been amazing. It's been brilliant to have yeah. you as part of the team and hopefully you'll continue to have that relationship with us even when your formal position comes to an end because yeah. you had a great influence on the, not just the thinking but also on socially and people's engagement you know across the organization mm. so thanks thanks to you too and thanks for inviting us yeah. thank you we would like to extend our thanks to james brining and amy leach of leeds playhouse and to paul wilshaw for hosting the podcast we'd also like to thank you for listening and hope you'll join us next month when Omakemi and Priya Mystery, also known as What's the Big Mystery, chat about sustainability within their arts practices and maintaining good mental health. <laughs>